0: Now, the story of Noah's Ark really happened. This is not fiction. This is not legend. This is not myth. Uh, The story of a worldwide flood really happened. Uh, God blotting out all of humanity except for one man and his family really happened. This story really, truly happened because the Bible tells me so. Uh, Jesus, by the way, mentions Noah. Jesus believed in Noah. Jesus believed this story really happened. And again, if Jesus believed the story really happened, I'm with Jesus. Alright? Sign me up with that. And so, this story really happened. And this story serves as a picture, if you will, of the big story. The big picture of redemption. There are some elements of the book of Noah that help us to understand... Uh, our need for a savior and what salvation looks like. You might say there are some parallels between the story of Noah and modern-day humanity. Parallels between the story of Noah and our own lives. So what I want to do is I want us to look at these pictures, these these some authors call them types uh, that foreshadow spiritual Realities, And so let me give you three things tonight, j- just three, three-point three message, so we, we'll be out of here at least by 8.30, okay? So just three things about Noah's Ark that picture spiritual realities in all of our lives. Number one, the story of Noah's Ark is a picture of the suddenness of judgment, the suddenness of Judgment. I just kind of a quick review. We studied chapter six last week. We saw how wicked the world uh, became because sin had entered the world and infested the world and corrupted the world, and God had had enough. And so God chose to to blot out humanity, to destroy humanity. But He gives Noah this man. He gives him some instructions as to how he would survive the flood. He says, you need to build an ark. And he gave him those instructions in chapter 6 because he's getting ready to send a worldwide flood. Well, in chapter 7, we're going to see that God actually sends the flood. And God initiates this this act of judgment on uh, wicked humanity. And yet shows grace by saving one man and his family. But this story is a picture of the suddenness of judgment. Now look what it says in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household... For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Now, Noah had been building this ark, and he knew that judgment was coming. He didn't know exactly when. God tells him here, seven days. One week, and it's starting. So he's preparing him to get the animals on the ark that God wanted him to get on the ark. It says that, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. So it gives us a timeline as to how old Noah was. But fast forward with me to verse 17. Verse 17. The Bible says, The flood continued... Forty days on the earth the water increased and bore the ark and it rose high above the earth. We can assume by that that as the flood began and the flood continued and the flood increased that humanity was taken by the suddenness of it all. Noah, the Bible says in Second Peter, was a preacher of righteousness. Uh, but we can tell by the lack of response that no one believed him. But you can bet that when... The rain came when the floods began, that they were overtaken by the suddenness of judgment. And we know that this flood is a picture of judgment uh, today because Jesus tells us that. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, I want to show you this. Jesus refers to the story of Noah's Ark and he draws some parallels with humanity in his time and humanity in our day. Matthew chapter 24, look what it says in verse 36. The Bible says, Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows the the day of tribulation, and after the time of tribulation, he says, I will return. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So Jesus, in his humanity, where he laid aside the rights and prerogatives of deity, did not know the exact dates for the end-time scenario to unfold, the exact dates of the Great Tribulation, the exact dates of his return. He was limited in that knowledge because he had laid aside some of the rights of deity. So listen, if Jesus, the Son of God, didn't know the date when he was on this earth, then don't believe anybody that gives you a date. Because if they begin to give you a date, or even a range of dates, a lot of folks say, I'm not, I'm not telling you when to come back, but it's going to be between this year and this year. You know, It's going to be between 2012 and you know, 2021. If, they, if they're even giving you a range of dates, they're claiming to know something that Jesus didn't know. And that's unfortunate. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as... Were the, "...for as were the days of Noah..." So he's mentioning this story to draw a parallel. "...for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, the days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man." Now, if you look there in your notes... Jesus tells us that in the days of Noah, people were living their lives, living their lives oblivious to the soon coming judgment of God, living their lives oblivious to the soon coming judgment of God. Jesus there says that they were before the flood eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. So they were just doing their thing, you know, having parties, spending time with family, having marriages, and, and they thought, well, judgment will not come. We're not in danger. And they just kept living their lives and kept thoughts of judgment and eternity and God far from their minds. Well, it's the same in our world today. Jesus says, just like it was in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He says, they were unaware until the flood came swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus says, when the end-time scenario unfolds, there are going to be folks that are in the same condition as people in the time of Noah, living their lives oblivious to coming judgment. If you look there in your notes, many people in today's time live their lives with little or no thought of God and eternity. Many people live their lives with little or no thought of God and eternity. It's amazing how people can go through the motions of life, having parties, having get togethers, going to work, having marriages, just, you know, just living life and never give serious thought to what's going to happen when they die or what's going to happen if the Lord should return. They, they just don't think about it. They, and it's almost like people are trying to keep thoughts of eternity out of their mind. They don't want to think about death. They don't want to think about dying. They don't want to think about judgment. They don't want to think about God. So they, they just live their lives and are just doing their thing. And they become desensitized by life to eternal realities. It happened in the days of Noah. Jesus says it's going to be the same way when the end times come. So many people live their lives with little or no thought of God and eternity. And there is a moment, listen, when it will be too late to repent. There's a moment when it will be too late to repent. He says there, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of The Son of Man. So they were doing their thing, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, having parties, living life, and the flood came and it was too late. Right? And Jesus said it's going to be the same exact scenario. People are going to be doing their thing, living their life, oblivious to God, eternity, judgment, and then it's going to come, eternity is going to come, finality is going to come, and they are going to be grossly. Unprepared, It will be too late to repent. Look what he says in verse 26. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Now, real quick, this passage is used a lot of times to speak of the rapture. You ever heard this passage used to speak of the rapture? Two people in the field... One's taken, which means in that view that one's raptured, and one is just there on earth thinking, what just happened? Right? You ever heard that view? And, and, and this verse is used to support the doctrine of the rapture. Now, I'm not saying I don't believe in the doctrine of the rapture, but I am saying, I don't know, you can use this verse to, to um, support that view. Let me show you why. Notice what he says there in verse 39. It says, They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, or took them all away. It's what it is literally there. Then it says, "So that's speaking of judgment, right? They were taken away. They were swept away by the flood." Verse forty. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken. If you mean, if you want that word to mean the same thing it meant in the previous verse, it means taken away in judgment, not taken away in the rapture. Just that's just extra. Okay. Uh, so I'm just I'm not saying there's no rapture. Right, I'm just saying those verses. If you if you look at them in context, you can't say that one will be taken as they're raptured. They're taken away in judgment. Because it's the same word in verse 39 that's used in verse 40. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken away in judgment, and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, fast forward to chapter 25. Chapter 25. Verse 1. Jesus shares a parable to speak of readiness. Readiness. And Jesus shares this parable to shake people from their lethargy. He's he's saying, listen, don't be oblivious to eternal realities. Don't just live your life and put thoughts of God out of your mind. You need to be ready. Look what he says. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward the other virgins came, also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So there's a moment where it's going to be too late to repent. And Jesus said, if you're not ready, he uses this parable to communicate, if you're not ready on that day, if you're not ready to face God, it's going to be too late. The door will be shut. All right? So judgment is a reality that we all need to consider. We need to be ready. Judgment will come because God will not overlook wickedness. Judgment will come because God will not overlook wickedness. The reason judgment came on the earth during the days of Noah with the flood was because God would not overlook their wickedness. And the reason judgment will come to humanity on the, the at the end of all things is because God will not overlook wickedness. He's holy. Listen. If God overlooked wickedness he would no longer be holy. Right? And that's not an option. God's holy. And so turn to 2nd Peter. I want to show you this. 2nd Peter, near the back of your New Testament. 2nd Peter chapter 2. 2nd Peter chapter 2 verse 4. Look at the argument that Peter makes here. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, that refers to the angels that were involved, I think, in Genesis 6, 1-4, the whole Nephilim passage and, and the sons of God uh, corrupted humanity. We talked about that last week, so we won't get into that. But God punished these fallen angels, these demons, He put him in chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So here's the the argument that Peter's making. If God punished fallen angels, if God destroyed the human race, with the exception of one man and his family, with a worldwide flood, if God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness and immorality, what makes you think God's not going to punish wickedness at the end of all things? You think you know, the Bible says that, that God doesn't change, right? He's immutable. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why don't you think that at the end of all things, as humanity stands before him, he's going to say, oh, you know what? No big deal. No big deal. No, the, the argument is this. If God punished the fallen angels and God punished the entire earth with a flood and God punished Sodom and more, you can bet that at the end of all things, any wickedness that comes before God that has not been forgiven by the blood of Jesus will be judged, will be punished. And if that's not true, then think about the folks of the centuries that have gotten away with it. If that's not true, listen, if final judgment's not true, Hitler got away with it, right? Killed millions of people, you know, brought nations in this world war, put his target on the Jews. I mean, think about how wicked Hitler was. He got off easy, right? He just took his own life. No punishment if there's no final judgment. But guess what? Hitler doesn't get off. God is holy, and evil will be judged. It's being judged right now in hell, and one day Hitler will be raised to stand before the great right throne of judgment, and because he is lost in his sins and does not know the Lord, he will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. Judgment will come. And that's what we need to learn from the story of Noah's Ark. That's the the point that Peter's making here. Judgment will come because God will not overlook wickedness. So here's the point, okay? As we think about Noah's Ark and this picture of the suddenness of judgment, Noah's Ark serves as a warning that we need to be ready. Noah's Ark serves as a warning that we need to be ready. Don't be like those folks in this day and time, in Noah's day and time, that were just living life and not thinking about being prepared to face God. Not being prepared to stand before God. Don't be like those folks. Be ready to meet God. And, and look at me, there's only one way to be ready to meet God. It's through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, Acts 4.12 says, there is no other name Uh, Under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. He's the only way to be ready for judgment. He's the only way to be ready for eternity. He's the only way to be ready to stand before God. So be ready. If you don't know Jesus, Noah's ark, which is a picture of final judgment, ought to cause you not to walk but to run to Jesus. Because he's your only hope. And so... The story of Noah's Ark is a picture of the suddenness of judgment. Just like that, people will be living their lives and judgment will come and it will be too late. Number two, the story of Noah's Ark is a picture of the completeness of judgment. The completeness of judgment. Now turn back with me to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. Look in verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. It's a long time. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. Now notice in verse 18, notice the word prevailed. Everyone say prevailed. Just remember that word. Verse 19. The waters prevailed. There it is again. Prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed. Everyone say prevailed. Prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Again, this is not a cute childhood story, okay? This is, this is devastating judgment. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark and the waters, there it is again, prevailed on the earth 150 days. So notice the repetition of the word prevailed. Verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, verse 24. The word prevail in the Hebrew language is a military word that means you succeed in battle. You triumph. You're victorious. So the repetition is meant to convey that God's judgment wins the day. God's, God's judgment prevails over the wickedness of the world. Prevail, 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 prevail. In other words, God's judgment was complete. God's judgment was final. God's judgment was irrevocable. And so we see there that the completeness of judgment prevailed over the earth. Now, what does that mean for us? How is this a picture of judgment today? Just like the earth was immersed in water, it will one day be immersed in fire. Did you know that? Just like the earth was immersed in water, one day it will be immersed in fire. Turn to 2 Peter, back to 2 Peter, chapter 3. I'll show you what the Bible says here. 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's, let's start in verse 8. The argument that Peter's addressing here is the argument that people... Had in the first century, saying, "You say Jesus is going to come back. Where is he? Why ain't he back yet?" And so Peter's explaining why Jesus hasn't come back yet. Look what he says: "Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." Listen, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Because he's patient. He wants to give people the opportunity to repent and get right with God. But one day, everybody look at me for a moment, one day that patience will come to an end. Verse 10. The day of the Lord, he says, will come like a thief, unexpected. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it, will be exposed. It says, all these things are thus to be dissolved. All these things, heavens, the earth. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. Heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. One day, just like the world was covered in water in Noah's time, one day the heavens and the earth will be covered in fire. They will be dissolved. They will be burned up so that God can then give us a new heaven and a new earth. Pretty pretty cool, right? If you're on the right side of things. That's awesome if you're saved and you get to enjoy the new heavens and new earth. But if you're not saved... As the the world and and, and the the heavens are consumed by fire, you'll have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and then you will be cast into the lake of fire. That's what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, end of chapter 20. And so, just like judgment in Noah's time was complete, there was no running from God's judgment. Judgment on the last day will be complete, Judgment will be, in your notes, will be final, complete, and permanent. In other words, it will be irrevocable. will not second chances. What you do with Jesus in this life determines where you spend eternity. And if you know Jesus in this life, then you'll spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. If you don't get right with Jesus in this life, when you die, there are no second chances. You will spend eternity in the lake of fire. So the Bible teaches, the completeness of judgment. When, when God judges, he judges in a very thorough manner. There's no escaping his judgment. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, the completeness of judgment. So we see that Noah's Ark and the worldwide flood was a picture of suddenness in terms of judgment and the completeness of judgment. Here's the third thing, and it gets good. I know that's all kind of heavy, but here's the good news. The story of Noah's ark is a picture of the security of salvation. The security of salvation. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, you could read that and say, well... Noah was saved because he was just better than other folks. He had somehow acquired a certain level of righteousness, and God said, "Boy, that is, that's impressive." So I think I'm going to save him and not save anybody else. But that would be works-based salvation. And that's not what's happening here. Notice he says, "You're righteous before me." That's the phrase he uses. In other words, Noah is rightly related to me. He knows me. Now here's the question. What made Noah righteous? What related Noah rightly to God? Well, we don't have to wonder. Hebrews tells us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Back to the New Testament. I'll have you flipping a lot tonight. It's good for you. Hebrews chapter 11. Look what it says in verse 7. Hebrews eleven seven 7, the, the, the hall of faith. It says, by what? By faith. by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by what? Why did God see Noah as righteous? Because he had achieved some level of goodness? No. He saw Noah as righteous because he had placed his faith in God's word. And remember we said this last week. This is very important. How did folks in the Old Testament, before the cross, get saved? Listen, the same exact way we get saved. We are saved by placing our faith in God's Savior, Jesus Christ. We're saved by looking back at what Jesus Christ has done for us, right? The cross, the empty tomb. Folks before the cross in the Old Testament were saved by looking forward to what God was going to do. They were looking toward the cross. We look back at the cross, but we're all saved by faith. That's why Noah was righteous before God. Because he had placed his faith in God, in his word, and he was saved by his faith. And so... Noah's saving faith is a picture of how we are saved, right? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. If you're, listen, if you're saved tonight, it's not because you're better than anyone else on the face of this planet. Not because you're smarter or you got it figured out. If you're saved, it's because you have received God's free gift of salvation by faith. The only reason. You you didn't achieve it. You didn't deserve it. I don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. We are only saved by faith, receiving the gift that Jesus offers us freely, that he purchased for us on the cross. That's how we are saved. Not by works, by faith. Receiving the gift of grace, which, by the way, separates biblical Christianity from every other world religion. Every other world religion has something that you're supposed to do to be right with God, right? you got to do these things. You've got to achieve these things. you got to do something. Christianity says it's already been done. Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. You just believe what, in what he did and receive that free gift that he offers you that he purchased with his own blood. And so world religions spell salvation D-O. Christianity spells salvation D-O-N-E. It's already been done by Jesus. Amen? We're saved by faith. Noah was saved by faith. The Bible is clear on that. Now, after he was rightly related to God, God worked in his life. He became a preacher of righteousness. He stood for the right things. God changed him. But he was saved by faith. Not only was he saved by faith, he was safe. He was safe. Look back in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this world. Generation Verse 4, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons, and his wife and his sons' wives with him, went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. So the ark was meant to save them from God's judgment. Clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. So listen to me. God did not just flood the earth by causing it to rain. The first water we see is water that burst up through the ground. You notice what it says there? It says, It says, Fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open." So water was coming from below, water was coming from above, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. You know, when there is an excess of water, it's a really helpless feeling, isn't it? It was Sunday. Uh, got home from church, and you know, my wife she 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 asked me to grill sometimes, and she only asked me to grill during severe weather. So if it's if it's under if it's below freezing, or if it's over one hundred degrees, or if there's a tornado watch, I'm probably outside grilling. I don't know why that is. Every time she wants something grilled, the weather is fierce. So anyway, I'm outside. The dog's looking at me like, what are you doing? And I'm grilling on the back porch and trying to get some, some food for the family. And it was, just, it was just coming down in buckets. And my yard was just filling up with water. Just to help, There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to control that water. I mean, you are powerless to deal with that water, right? I, I'm from Florida. And right now, the panhandle of Florida is going through some great flooding. They said that I-10 is 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 flooding that that interstate and and people are having to be rescued from their vehicles and just can't believe the the devastation in, in Pensacola and other areas on the on the panhandle because there's nothing you can do when there when there's more water than the 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 ground can handle there's nothing you can do about it you can't stop it you are powerless that 's what's happening here people were powerless the the water was coming from below the water was coming from Above. Hey, just kind of a quick word. How many of you ever heard of the theory of Pangea? Raise your hand if you ever heard that theory. If you, Pangea is the, is the view that when you look at the, the globe and you look at the different continents, it looks like some of them fit together. Like if you took Africa over here and you kind of brought it over, it kind of fits to in with South America, you know, a little bit. And if you, it looks like they all kind of fits together. And so people say, uh, experts say that that millions and millions and millions and millions of years ago, the landmass was one. It was Pangea, and over millions and millions and millions of years, they separated in tectonic plates and they redistributed around the globe the way we have them today. I think that this is a very simple solution to why it looks like the earth was all one, but now it's in different parts. I believe that when the waters came from below, the waters came from above, and waters covered the face of the earth, even above the highest mountain. Now, you know how tall the highest mountain is? Mount Everest? 29,000 plus. Think about that. A mile is 5,280 feet, so think about how high 29,000 feet is. Miles! Miles! Miles above sea level. Think about water that covers that. Think about the pressure, the weight of that much water. Think about the, the damage that water coming from the deeps would do in, in just destroying land masses. And I believe that you can, you can go back to the flood to see, hey, land looked like it used to fit together, but now it's all spread out. The flood explains that. The flood explains that. So that's just my own two cents Folks might argue with me on that, and, and I could be wrong, but we'll f- figure that out when we get to heaven. But it makes good sense to me, all right? So water's coming down from above. The great deep is bursting forth. The very same day Noah and his son Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three, son, three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. Then every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind and every bird, according to its kind and every winged creature. If I was Noah, it would have been hard for me to let the wasps on. I hate wasps. I hate those things. I got bad wasp problems this year. I would have said, sorry, not getting them. But anyway. It says, they, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was breath of life. So what we're seeing here is, Noah and these animals are safe from the rain, safe from the flood. They are being preserved by the ark. And so Noah was saved by faith and Noah was safe. And if this is a picture of the security of salvation, listen to me. I want you to hear me carefully on this. If you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, listen, it's really good what I'm about to say. You're safe. You're safe. Jesus says it like this over in John 10. He says that you're in his hand and you're in the Father's hand and no one can snatch you out of their hand. No one can snatch you out of God's hand. You're in the hand of God. Isn't that good news? Over in... In uh, Romans, the end of Romans chapter 8, it says, "What, What shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And the answer is nothing. He goes through this long list. Nothing can separate us from the love of God found in Christ. When you know Christ, you're safe. Safe from final judgment. Safe from... Sudden judgment, safe from complete judgment, safe from devastating judgment. You're safe. That's what salvation is. You're you're saved from the wrath of God. Just like Noah and his family were saved from the wrath of God. So Noah was saved by faith and Noah was safe. Here's the next thing. Noah was sealed. Noah was sealed. I love this verse. Look what happens in verse 16 of Genesis 7. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. I love this. And the Lord shut him in. Who closed the door on the ark? God did. God did. Just when it was time for the flood to come, the the waters were coming. God made sure everyone was on the ark. The animals were on the ark. Noah and his family were on the ark. No stowaways like the movie says. All right? The movie said there was a stowaway on the ark. Give me a break. Like God would have said, whoa, you got got me. I just, you know. Wow, you you fooled me. I didn't know there was a stowaway on the ark. Anyway. But God closes the door. This is a picture of God sealing us in our salvation. Over in... Ephesians chapter 1, it says that we are sealed in the Spirit to the day of redemption. The way God seals us is that when we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, at the moment of conversion, the moment we're born again, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, comes to live on the inside of us. He seals us. God closes the door. Because how many of you understand that when God starts something, He finishes it? Philippians six says that he who began a good work in you will complete it. The way he does that is he, he saves you, and at the moment of salvation, he seals you with the Spirit. God closes the door. You're his, and you'll always be his. The Lord shut the door. The Lord sealed Noah. Now, I, I, want, you, I want you to see this parallel over in 1 Peter. Again, the, the story of Noah's Ark is a picture of the security of our salvation. Look in First Peter, chapter 3. We looked at this passage briefly last week. By the way, if you missed last week, you missed some crazy stuff, okay? But you can listen to it on the, on the uh, website or on our uh, podcast. Well, I think Wednesday night's on the website. Sunday mornings are on the podcast. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The Bible says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, I believe that's fallen angels in the days of Noah, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So he's mentioning Jesus preaching after his death, before his resurrection, to the spirits in prison, the fallen angels. I believe he went and preached a message of, of victory over Satan and his demons. But then he starts talking about Noah and the ark being built. And then look what he says in verse 21 Baptism, which corresponds to this. So he's about to talk about something that corresponds to Noah's ark. Everybody got that? That's important. So Noah's Ark pictures a spiritual reality. There's something that is true in our lives or can be true in our lives that corresponds to Noah's Ark. Everybody with me? Now what is it? He says there, baptism corresponds to this. He says, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Now some some people read that verse and say, oh, slam dunk, you're saved by being baptized. We got to keep reading, all right? Look what he says. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. He's not talking about going under the water. That's not what saves you. He's talking about a different kind of baptism. Wait, what kind of baptism is he talking about? Look what he says. He says, An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. When he says that this baptism that saves you corresponds to Noah's ark, he doesn't mean you're saved through water baptism. He's talking about an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, this speaks of, listen, an inward spiritual transaction between God and the individual, a transaction symbolized by the outward ceremony of baptism. When he says baptism now saves you, he's not talking about the outward physical ceremony where you go under the water and come up. He's talking about the inward spiritual reality which baptism represents. The word appeal here, when he speaks of appeal for a good conscience, could mean request or answer or pledge. It was used sometimes as a technical term in making contracts. The point here is that we enter into an agreement with God when we place our faith in Christ. We say, I believe that Jesus saves. I believe that Jesus is my only hope. We come to God with our faith and repentance, and then God gives us a clear conscience. So what's a clear conscience? A clear conscience comes when a person has the assurance that every sin has been forgiven, that he or she stands in a right relationship with God. Look at me. I have a clear conscience tonight. Not because I'm good. I have a clear conscience tonight in spite of my sin. Because I've met the Savior. And I know that in Christ my sins are forgiven. I know I have a relationship with God whereby I can call him Father. So I'm going to sleep great tonight because I have a clear conscience with God. Jesus gave me that as a gift. I've been baptized in a relationship with him whereby I have a clear conscience. And notice he says there, through the resurrection, verse 21 Of Jesus Christ. The resurrection sealed the deal because it proved that Jesus was who he said he was. And it proved that Jesus can give us life beyond the grave. And so the baptism that he mentions there, the baptism that saves you, is not immersion in water. The baptism that saves you is immersion into Jesus Christ. See that? In other words, this is in your notes. Just like Noah and his family were saved in the ark... We are saved by the risen Lord Jesus. You might say it like this, and this is good Jesus Christ is our ark. He's the one that saves us from the judgment of God. He is our ark. We are sealed when we know Christ. We are sealed in Him. I love what the scholar Derek Kidner writes. He writes, The Lord shut him in. Speaking of Noah, the expression, beautifully shows God's fatherly touch at the very brink of judgment. Listen, the same care that saw this matter through carries our salvation to its conclusion. So what I'm saying to you is this. Jesus is the ark that saves you from the wrath of God. The wrath that your sin deserves. The wrath that my sin deserves. Jesus is the ark. He will baptize you with a clean conscience. And so... The security of salvation that Noah experienced is a picture of the security that we experience in Jesus Christ. Noah was saved by faith. We are saved by faith. Noah was safe. We are safe. Noah was sealed. We are sealed from God's judgment. Now here's the obvious application, going back to what we talked about with judgment. If Jesus is the ark, if Jesus is the one that saves you, you need to get on board before it's too late. Amen? You get on board before it's too late. Listen to this quote from Alexander McLaren. This comes via Warren Wearsby. McLaren, a great preacher of the early 1900s, wrote this of Noah and his time. For 120 years the wits laughed, and the common sense people wondered, and the patient saint went on hammering and pitching at his ark. But one morning it began to rain, and by degrees, somehow, Noah did not seem quite such a fool. The jests would look rather different when the water was up to the knees of the jesters, and their sarcasms would stick in their throats as they drowned. So is it always, he writes. So it will be at the last great day. The men who live for the future by faith in Christ will be found out to have been the wise men when the future has become the present and the present has become the past and is gone forever. While they who had no aims beyond the things of time, which are now sunk beneath the dreary horizon, will awake too late to the conviction that they are outside the ark of safety and that their truest epitaph is, thou fool. There are a lot of scoffers when it comes to biblical Christianity. Our nation is rapidly, rapidly becoming hostile to folks that say we believe the word of God. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. But one day, the scoffers, the enemies of the cross, will say I was a fool. I was a fool to turn my back to the one that could save me from from God's wrath. I was a fool not to get on board. The salvation that's found in Christ, I was a fool. The scoffing will turn to weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus is the ark that saves us. Get on board before it's too late. I want to say one more thing very quickly before we're through. It's actually a four-point summary. I lied to you. Sorry about that. Forgot about point number four. The story of Noah's Ark is a picture of the suddenness of judgment. The story of Noah's Ark is a picture of the completeness of judgment. The story of Noah's Ark is a picture of the security of salvation. But fourth, the story of Noah's Ark is a picture of the call to worship. I want to meddle just for a minute. Is that okay? Can I meddle with you for a minute? Is that okay? All right. Turn to Genesis 7. Genesis 7, verse 1. Now we always hear the story of Noah's ark that animals went on the ark two by two. Like the old song says, right? Two by two. Well, there were some animals uh, of which Noah was to put more on the ark than just twos. Look what it says in verse 2 of chapter 7. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. The male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the the male and his mate. So unclean animals, you just need a pair. The clean animals, you need seven pairs. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Now why were there certain animals that Noah was supposed to take seven pairs of onto the ark? Well, we don't have to wonder. Turn with me to chapter 8. We'll get to chapter 8 next week. Just kind of a quick snapshot of what happened when Noah got off the ark, saved from the flood. It says in Genesis 8, verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. God wanted him to take extra of these animals so he could use them as an act of worship. Because if there was only a pair of these animals and he killed them in the in the act of worship' he offered them as a sacrifice, and those animals would go extinct, right, But he had seven pairs he had enough to offer as a sacrifice in worship and keep the the animals alive preserved and so look there in your notes: the instruction to take seven pairs of clean animals anticipated the worship of noah he 'd have animals to worship with to offer as a sacrifice, which remember. Sacrifice in the Bible is a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that's found in Jesus Christ. An innocent animal would die, its blood would be shed, which pictures Jesus Christ, who is innocent, shedding his blood for our sins. So the instruction to take seven pairs of clean animals anticipated the worship of Noah and the institution of the sacrificial system. This is before the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, but it was coming. And God was going to designate some animals as clean animals, some as unclean animals. And the clean animals were to be used in worship of God in in the sacrificial system as a picture of the ultimate sacrifice found in Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. And so this instruction to take seven pairs of clean animals anticipates, prefigures, foreshadows the sacrificial system. But notice that when Noah gets off the ark, he and his family have been preserved, what's the first thing that he does? What? He worships, right? Gets the seven animals, and he worships. He, he offers them as a sacrifice. Listen to me. This is the last thing on your notes. Worship is the right response to God's gracious salvation. Worship is the right response to God's gracious salvation. How silly would it have been for Noah to get off the ark and say, I'm a great shipbuilder. I'm glad I had the foresight to build a big boat. I'm glad that I I did the pitch just right to keep us afloat. I, I did a great job saving my family. Who told Noah how to build the boat? God did. Who closed the door? God did. Who kept Noah alive in the flood? God did. Noah couldn't take credit. All Noah could say is, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. And shouldn't it be the same way in our lives? We can't take credit. We don't bring anything to the table. But God in His grace has saved us from His wrath through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so our natural response should be, thank you. God, you're so good. I want to worship you. Look over with me very quickly in Psalm 95. I've been reading psalms in my quiet time and... I came across this passage recently and it just it just captures my heart. Psalm ninety five. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Look in verse six. Oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. So the psalmist here is saying, we've experienced the deliverance of God. We've experienced the goodness of God. We've experienced the grace of God. We've experienced the salvation of God. Our only response is worship. Thank you, God. We're going to sing praises. We're going to bow before you. We're going to have gratitude in our life because you have saved us. Now I want you to hear me carefully. If if your salvation in Christ doesn't lead you to worship, you're missing the point of it all. Because I want you to know this. The primary reason God saved you was not just for you. Of course, we are blessed with forgiveness, and eternal life, relationship with God. But the primary reason God saved you was for his own glory. So that he gets the worship that he so richly deserves. It's all about Him. So if you have experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't lead you to worship, you're missing the point of it all. You were saved to make much of the Lord, to, to make much of Jesus, to worship and glorify His great name. He's the one that did it. You can't take credit, so who should get the glory? God should. God's preeminent motivation in doing everything that He does is for his name to receive maximum glory. If you just read the Bible a little bit, you'll see it all throughout the scriptures. You say, uh, well, hey, on the when we all get to heaven, I want to sing, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. No, you're not. No, you're not. When you get to heaven, you're going to be singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. It's going to be about Him. Not about you, it's going to be about Him. When you get to heaven, you're going to be glorifying His great name because there's nothing else to do other than to give the glory to the one that deserves it. Right? So worship is the right response to God's gracious salvation. Now let me go to Medlin for a minute. If that's true, if this is true, if, if someone that's truly saved should have the, the automatic response to worship and show gratitude to God, if that's true, then why do we have to beg people to come worship? Good question, isn't it? I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you for a minute. It's getting rare in American Christianity to find a family that can put three Sundays together in a row worshiping Jesus. Now some of you are thinking, okay, I'm not talking about anybody in particular, or I don't have anybody in mind at all. But I'm just saying, why is it so hard for us to want to come worship? Why is it so hard for us to make that a priority in our lives? If we've truly tasted the grace of Jesus. Why do churches have to put on, put on productions and, and draw you and, and provide this and that for you to come and be involved in church? Listen. No one should have to beg you to worship. Right? I, I didn't see Noah go off the ark and say, okay, I, I, will, I will worship God when I have the right kind of building to worship God in. If you get me a building with the right kind of seats and the right color carpet and the right kind of lighting and the right kind of music, then I'll, I'll worship there. Is that what Noah said? Is it? What did he do? He got on his knees and started worshiping, right? Sacrificing animals. He got with it. No one had to beg him to worship. No one had to, to lure him to worship. No one had to say, We're going to put on this really big thing so you'll come worship. No. I believe the only motivation that we should need to worship is, Hey, I've been saved by the grace of God. My sins have been washed away. And listen, and if the church that I'm a part of is having a worship service, I'm going to be there, buddy. Unless I'm sick or out of town on vacation or whatever, I'm going to be there. You couldn't keep me away from there. Because I want to go tell Jesus how much I love him. I want to go hear his word taught, preached. I want to go grow in my walk with him I want to respond to his greatness and his grace. I want to respond to his mercy and his love. I want to worship. I think someone that understands the glory of salvation will not have to be begged to come and worship Jesus. That's just my that's just my view, all right? And so whoever that was meant for then Maybe somebody you know, go tell them. Go worship, all right? Tell them that they need to be involved in worship. But there is here a, a call to worship. The picture of Noah getting off the ark and worshiping with the clean animals is a picture of our call to worship. When we've experienced God's salvation from his devastating judgment, we should not have to be begged to worship. Amen? If someone has to beg you to worship, something's, you don't, you're missing something. You don't understand something about your salvation. All right? Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. So, chapter 7 is a picture of four spiritual realities. Suddenness of judgment, completeness of judgment, security of salvation. Number four, the call to worship.